John chapter 5, John chapter 5. Uh, last week we finished up our series on the first and second on the first letter and second letter of, of Peter. And so we're taking a little bit of break before we start into our new segment uh, of, of the book. Um, but so I wanted to take a little bit of time and, and I've wanted to preach on this for some time. So um, we're going to look at the story of the healing of the per- paralytic man by the pool of Bethsaida. John chapter 5 verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic, called Bethsaida, which has five roof colonnades, and in those lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and he knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going to another, when I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. May God add a blessing to his word. Please be seated. I love this story of the paralytic man at the pool of Bethsaida. And we find it, as we just read in John chapter 5, so it's fairly early within um, whoops, within John's gospel. And it's a story of a miraculous healing by our Lord to a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, if you could imagine that, for 38 years, and who had been waiting there at this pool for healing for quite some time. Now, John does not specify what length of time that was. And when you study this story, there is so much that we can learn from it. I could preach on this for months from the perspective of the paralytic, from the perspective of the ruling Jews, from the perspective of Jesus. What does it mean to be healed in the manner in which Jesus healed? There's so many things that we can dive into and understand. And that's because the Word of God is living, right? Its depth cannot be measured. Now, what is interesting about this story is the dynamic we see unfold as to how Jesus 
heals this man. And how he responds to this healing and how the Jews, the ruling Jews, responded to this healing. It's interesting to note their reactions to it. In fact, this this, this scripture, this story, is almost a cautionary tale of what not to do in the midst of Jesus ministering to us. Before we begin, let me ask a question to kind of get your mind focused on what we're going to be doing here this morning. And it's a stirring question. Have you ever been so focused on something in your life that you missed something very important? I think we've all been there. Maybe an anniversary, maybe a birthday, maybe a family event, or an opportunity at work, or some special event that occurred and you missed it because you were focused in another area in your life. Or how about this? Have you ever missed the movement and the working of Jesus in someone else's life or maybe your own life because your focus was on something else you thought was more important? Or you held a rigid position and as a result, you missed the opportunity to see Jesus move in someone else's life or Jesus asking you to move in someone else's life. That's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about us not missing Jesus while He's working. To miss the opportunities that God has divinely inspired for us to be a part of, to be used for, as a result of not being focused on Him, but on other things, such as ourself, or maybe our understanding and rigidness towards Scripture. So let's examine this. In fact, my title of my, this, my, my sermon this morning is, Don't Miss Jesus. Don't miss Him. In each case, the paralytic and the ruling Jew both missed Jesus, as I read, and we're going to study a little bit more as to why. They were blinded by either a misdirected faith, putting their faith in something else other than God, or to the rigid application of a doctrine. What they held to be true in Scripture. It's easy to do, as we will see. So let's look at it, verse 1 through 3. After this, there was a feast for the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, chapter 5 comes after Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, and the healing of the official in Capernaum. And so now Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem, has arrived to Jerusalem, And he's now entered into the city. And he's probably there for the Passover. Now there's quite a bit of debate as to which Passover because it would determine the length and time of Jesus' ministry at this time. And that's something that you could certainly dive into, go home and study, but that's not really relevant to what we're talking about this morning. What we do know is that Jesus is there, and he is there for some feast. John does not elaborate. Some people think it was Pentecost. Other people think it was the Feast of Tabernacles in which it required all the male Jews to be there. And so we see Jesus is here, regardless of what it is. Now the Sheep Gate, 
as it's mentioned here in Scripture, is one of seven gates that entered into Jerusalem during Jesus' time, as, as Jerusalem obviously had a wall of protection. And it was also called the Lion's Gate. In fact, today you can actually go there and still see a lion figure on the gate itself. In fact, some people believe, and it's probably true, that the sheep that were used for, for, for sacrifices at the temple would come through. That's why they called it the Sheep's Gate. It was on the eastern side of Jerusalem, on the north side of the temple. And this pool called Bethsaida, which means house of mercy in Aramaic, which is a Semitic language that was spoken at the time. The pool was initially, just as you see it there, almost like a well. And it was believed, even before the time of Jesus, that this pool had medicinal purposes. The Greeks believed that you could go there and be healed as a result of the waters that are in this pool. And so it was not only the Jews that believed that this pool had medicinal purposes, but there were also non-Jews who believed it had medicinal purposes. Now, nowhere in the Bible do we know if this is actually a fact or if it is folklore. In fact, some lean to the fact that it's more folklore than fact. Um, now, this pool was fed by an artesian well, right? So, depending upon the moisture. Now, Jerusalem, if you know anything about Jerusalem, I've never been there, can't wait to go there. But Jerusalem is really sitting on a hill, and it's in a kind of a high desert area, and the moisture, and they would use ways to capture water from runoff and rainfall, put them in cisterns so that they would have adequate water supplies. But this area was, was fed by an artesian well, and to this day, some of the pictures that I've seen and the tours that I've seen on YouTube, during heavy times of moisture, the, these wells would actually fill up again. As you can see there, it's dry, but in, in the summer there would be vegetation around it and there would actually be water in it. And so that those wells are still providing for that, that spring. Now that was the original well. Well then here comes Herod and he says, well I'm going to capitalize on that and we're going to build it up a little bit, make it an attraction. And so what they did is Herod built what we describe, what we see and described uh, in Scripture, as John describes it, as five roof colonnades. All right? Now he's, now he's taken it, he's put a dam in there, and now there's two pools. In fact, there's many people that, you know, like, that never existed. There are, there are archaeologists that say, John's description is wrong, it never existed. They don't, this is a myth. Well, they actually found it. They found it a long time ago, but they couldn't have properly identified it. And I think in 2005, check me on that, in 2005, the archaeologists confirmed that they found the pool of Bethsaida, just as John described it. There were some of the colonnades still residing there, and those colonnades provided shade, and that shade provided a means for those that had maladies that would be there gathering, as we see multitudes, gathered there for the healing by way of the angels stirring up the water. Right? Now, verse 4, I was hoping Antonia would be here today as she's moving to Grand Forks. She thought maybe she would be here, and I was going to say, hey, look, they named a, a portion of that Antonia. But anyway, she's not here. But in verse 4, if you noticed when I was reading, 
for those that read the King James Version, New King James Version, that there's no verse 4. I didn't read verse 4 out of the ESV. And there's a reason for that. Here's verse 4. If you, don't, if you read the ESV, if you read the NASB, which I believe it's in brackets, you, be, you read the NIV or the New Living Translation, you will not find verse 4. You will find a note, but not verse 4. So here's verse 4. For an angel went down to a certain time into the pool and stirred the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. The reason why it's not found in the ESV, it's not found in the NIV, it's not found in New Living Translation, it's bracketed in the NASB, is because early manuscripts did not contain verse 4. It was a scribal add-on to give context to verse 7. If you look at verse 7, you see... I don't have to turn my page. It's right here. The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool, and the water is stirred up. While I'm going, another one steps down before me. Well, what was stirring up the water? Well, according to verse 4, it's an angel of the Lord. However, the earliest manuscripts do not contain that. Therefore, it's what they call a scribal entry. And most of the manuscripts after the early manuscripts, remember, there is no original manuscripts for any of the Gospels. None. The original writing of John has been lost to time. And so what we have is these manuscripts that have been copied by the hands of scribes. And and in in the later manuscripts, they actually put an asterisk next to this verse saying it was not found in the earlier, more accurate manuscripts. And so it's a warning for other scribes who copied because they didn't have Xerox or whatever we're calling them today, canon printers, whatever, that they... Take note, this may not be in the earlier manuscripts. Now, some would say, well, doesn't that complicate the inerrancy of God's Word? No, it doesn't. There are grammatical errors in the Word of God. There are scribal admissions and omissions. But it doesn't change the original intent and context, context, which is inerrant. Okay? And so, verse 4 is put in there for context of verse 7. Now, let me say this about the pool. They have done a research of it. There's no biblical evidence of an angel of the Lord going to this pool, stirring up the water, and people being healed. Many count this as folklore. What's happening when the water is stirred is because of the artesian well, it disturbs the flow of the pool. And they believe it to be an angelic stirring, which if you could get there quick, you could be healed. But no healing has ever been, rec- ever been recorded biblically. And so that's why verse 4 is not there, and we need to understand the context of the pool as we move forward in understanding these scriptures. Verse 5 and 6, One man was, was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time. He said to him, So you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? So here we find the introduction to the man who was paralytic. John does not provide a backdrop as to who this person is, his name, where he is from, how long he has been there. All we know is that he's a paralytic. We don't know what caused it. We don't know 
what his condition is, whether it's something that could be treated or something that is going to remain with him for the rest of his life. In fact, we don't know much about him except that he's been at this pool for a long time, waiting for the waters to be stirred, waiting to get his turn, waiting to be taken to the water so that he could be healed. Now, it's important for us to understand this. Jesus knew this. He didn't discover this by some other person. Hey, Jesus, i got to tell you about this guy, this paralytic that's over here by the pool. He's been here for 38 years. He's been here for a while, and he's still hopeful. that he could. No, Jesus knew this. Jesus knew everything about this man. Jesus knew his name. Jesus knew his condition. Jesus knew exactly what the condition was. Jesus was fully man and fully God, and he knows the hearts of men. There is nothing hidden from this man's life from Jesus, and there's nothing hidden from your life from Jesus. He knows everything there is to know about you, how you think, how you talk, how you act, the thoughts you have in your mind right now. Tim, could you button this up a little quick? I'm not saying to anybody who said that. Listen to Psalms 139. For you were formed in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. He knows everything about you. You can hold nothing from him. You can conceal nothing from him. He knows how you think, how you react, how you interpret, and how you will respond. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your strengths. Now, this man we know to be a Jew because of his interaction later with the ruling Jews. No Gentile would be subject to them. Other than this, we're left to surmise as to who this man is. Now, when Jesus asked him directly, do you want to be healed? And I, I really love how Jesus is. In fact, some people say, well, you can't really determine how Jesus said that because I, I, don't, I take John at face value. Jesus was very direct. And I like the fact that Jesus is very direct. Jesus is not passive-aggressive. He's not going to take the long way around the barn. He's going to get to the heart of the issue. And I love that about the Lord because He takes the shortest route to us as well. He doesn't beat around the bush. He gets right to the point. And He says, do you want to be healed? And the man's response was an excuse. It wasn't an answer. It was an excuse. He said, well, I don't have anybody to carry me over when the water is stirred. That's why I'm not healed. I believe in the pool. I believe that the pool can heal me, and I believe that I'm here, and I just got to get my time. Maybe I got to position myself a little closer. Maybe ask some help. He didn't say yes. He made an excuse. I think that kind of shows something about this man and his character. Maybe it's not always his fault. 
Maybe his paralysis is not his fault. Maybe it's always somebody else's. I'm surmising. Scripture does not tell us that. That's the investigator in me kind of spinning my mind. Now, what's interesting is the man has been there for a while. How long? Again, we don't know. And he must have seen this pool stirred by what archaeologists believe is the inflowing of the artesian well. And he must have seen people go to that. He must have seen people go in there and come out not healed. Again, we don't have any biblical record that anybody was ever healed at this pool. And yet he stayed. Continuing to be hopeful. Continuing to put his faith in a pool. And the assistance of others. Just a short distance away was the temple. Where he could petition the priests for prayers of healing. Putting his faith squarely upon the Lord. Not on a pool. Not on a place. Not on other people. Again, I believe this man felt that he could be healed. But his faith was misdirected in a pool. Not in God. Fully. You know, we could do the same thing. If we're not careful, we can misdirect our faith. I've had the privilege of speaking to a man several times who has had a life-threatening illness, who is now on, hopefully, the road to recovery. When I speak to him about the answered prayer to his situation, which I believe is a divine miracle, so many things happened to bring everything together for this man to be healed. And when I speak to him about that, and I, I remind him of how the Lord has come through and how the Lord has answered prayer and how he's been, this is a miracle. He gives cursory acknowledgement to the Lord, and then he goes on to say, I am just so thankful for the guardian angels that I have in these people, and he, and he named them off. And my heart sank. Do you not recognize that your healing has come from the Lord? Yes, we need to encourage people who are, who are in need of healing. Yes, we need to be there to serve them. Yes, we need to be supportive of them. But it seemed like he put more faith in them for his healing than God. He missed it. And I pray he won't miss it for very long. I have met several people who have been divinely healed, and when you bring it up, it is, thank you, Jesus. They are so excited about what the Lord has done in their life. But sometimes we can misdirect our faith into something like a pool or people. It's good to put your faith in people but never at the sacrifice of putting your faith in God. Verse 7 and 9, The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another one steps down before me. Jesus said, Again, be very direct. Love this about Jesus. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Jesus didn't say, Do you want to be healed or not? 
got a busy day here, a lot of people around. He just simply told him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. That's important for us to understand. This man placed conditions on his faith. The first condition was the pool. The second condition was those who would help him. How many of us have placed conditions on our faith? What do you mean, Tim? Condition? I don't understand. Have you ever heard this? I've got to get right, be right before God before He will accept me. I've got to get my life in order before God will accept me. Like it's up to you. Right? I've I, I got to get back into church so that I can get right with the Lord. You don't have to wait for church. You can get right with the Lord right now. Remember, it's by grace that you have been saved, not anything you've done. You know, when the crowds cried out to Peter after his sermon on Pentecost, and they cried out, Peter, what do we need to do to be saved? He said, repent and believe. He didn't say, go home, give us some thought, get your prayers in order, get your affairs in order, get your mind right, clean up a little bit, stop drinking so much wine. He said, repent and believe. It's not hard. It's quite simple. Jesus tells him, get up, take your bed and walk. And John said he did it at once. There was no like, okay, let's get some physical therapy in here, get them joints moving. No, instant healing up and walk. Amazing. And there was a multitude of people there. And they all seen it. He had been there for a long time. People knew him. Instantly, up and walking. Now what's missing here? If we look at Scripture. He didn't say any thank you. He didn't praise Jesus. He didn't say anything. He just got up and walked. Now, Go back to chapter 4 and his interactions with the woman at the well. Go back to chapter 4, look at his interactions with the official and the healing of his son. They praised him. They believed upon him. This man didn't. And for some to think, well, John is being very descriptive of this story and for that not to be there is interesting to me. And it sets up the rest of the story. He walked away, not knowing Jesus. Now later, Jesus removed himself, and there was a great multitude, so he missed him. There's been many times in my ministry as an elder and as a pastor where people come and ask for prayers for healing for people that they know, family, friends, and any kind of malady that they have. And the first question I got is, well, are they saved? 
Some say no. Some say, well, they go to church. Some don't even know. Brothers and sisters, prayer is powerful. The prayer of a fervent man availeth much. That's what the Scripture says. It's the first and most in priority work. And it's our prayers to a divine healer that brings healing. Let us pray first for the man and for the woman's salvation. That is far more important than whatever infirmity they have. Let's get that right. My follow-up question is, are you talking to them about the Lord? Yes, I understand that when you're talking with somebody and they have a situation going on in their life and you say, well, my church is going to pray for that. Praise God, we're doing that. And yes, there are people that have been saved by way of divine healing. But divine healing doesn't always guarantee salvation. Nine lepers. Only one out of the ten. How many came back? One. Let's pray for their soul. So that they recognize who's doing the healing. Verse 10 through 13. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is a Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. According to the Pharisees, Ruh-roh, might have a problem here. And the Jews that were being described here in this verse are ruling Jews. We call them Pharisees. They were the religious leaders. They were the religious police. They were the ones that went around and making sure everybody was observing the law and not breaking it. And so they confronted this man because he was carrying his bedroll. A bedroll? He's wrong? He's violating the law? Why? Why so specific about a bedroll? Well, first we need to understand the law. This is what Leviticus 23.3 says about the Sabbath. Six days shall be work done, but on the seventh day is Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. That's all it says. Do you see anything in there about a bedroll? You won't. So where does that bedroll carrying thing come from where it makes it against the law? Well, we need to understand the Pharisees. The Pharisees added to the law traditions and other laws which Jesus called the teaching and doctrines of men. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines of the commandments of men. Why did they add to the law? I mean, if God gave the law to Moses, Levitical, Ten Commandments, wouldn't that be enough? In fact, the foundation of the Pharisaical rules was the Torah, the law that God gave Moses and the Jewish people in the, in the desert. 
The most famous was the Torah is the Ten Commandments as we know them today. Still relevant, by the way. And there are 613 other commandments that was given to Moses for the Jews. 613. That's what they were supposed to be following. But over time, Jewish leaders began to slowly add to these laws in what is called the Mishnah which were additional teachings that were derived from sermon and sayings and teachings as they would go about interpreting the law, the Levitical law. It would be like taking commentaries, the, you know, the, the commentaries that we use today to fully understand Scripture. Instead of using it as an informative tool, we, we would take those commentaries and say, we got to add to the Scriptures what they're saying. And so they added. And the original reason why they did this was to clarify the law. That's why we have commentaries today, to get some insight as to what it's saying in the context, historical, the audience, the writer, and so on and so forth. But it was also to guard, to put a hedge of protection around the individual so that they don't violate the law. In other words, we're going to make more laws to ensure that they don't break the law. And over time, those additional laws became equal to the law itself. Now, what's interesting here is this carrying the bedroll was actually part of what is called the Shabbat laws or the Sabbath laws. And there's 39 of them. And guess what the last one is? Caring. Caring. Things you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath. And if you ever read it, I, I would interest you to go, and it's called the Melachot, or the Shabbat laws, or the Sabbath laws, and there's 39 of them. Some of them govern the work, making curtains, um, and like other things that are kind of odd, right? But there's 39 things you don't do on the Sabbath. These were equal to the law. This is the law they were breaking. Not the Levitical law, but the Shabbat laws. And that is why Jesus didn't break the law on the Sabbath, nor did this man. He broke the law of man, not God's law. In fact, irony sets in pretty heavy here. The Jews actually, the ruling Jews actually broke the law by adding to it. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, and Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32 says, you will not make an addition to my law. They did. They added to it. You know, we could do the same thing in denominations. We can add certain criteria and certain things to what we understand Scripture to say. Now, here's what's interesting me too in this. The Jews made no comment on this man's divine healing. How did they miss that? This man had been there for a while. They knew the man. How did they miss it? They did no rejoicing. They did no professing, no worshiping. No, God has healed you. Nothing. All they wanted to know is, where's the dude that did this? It's a Sabbath. You're not supposed to heal an infirmity on the Sabbath. 
Were they hearing themselves? A divine healing on the Sabbath. No, no, we don't do that. You see, the Jews found their righteousness in the law and keeping it. You know what they missed? The Savior who would give them righteousness. They missed him. Now, some would say, well, how, how, how can that happen today? I'm going to tell you a story you've heard before. Some of you haven't heard it before. When I was first saved, my wife and my mom were having a conversation, and my mom says, well, why did, Jesus ha- why did Tim have to leave our Jesus and go for their Jesus? I was born and raised Catholic. She was asking, why did you leave the church? Before I was saved, I was, hmm. After I was saved, the Lord was transforming my life. My wife had a very direct answer. Which Tim would you rather have? The one before or the one after? You see, my mom missed it. She was so focused on the fact that I left the church, she wasn't seeing the transforming nature of Jesus Christ in my life. No more drinking, no more cussing, no more doing those things, going to church, reading the scriptures, growing in the wisdom and knowledge and understanding of God. A changed person who has grace, who has peace, who has love. Not an angry, bitter short-tempered, prone to drinking too much person. She was more concerned about the religion than my relationship with Christ. That's how we can miss it. The Jews missed it. Let's not us miss it. Verse 14 through 16. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, See, you are well. Sin no more. Nothing may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. There we go again. They're so focused on the Sabbath, they're missing Jesus. Now, this is the second interaction that Jesus had with the man. Notice that the man didn't seek out Jesus. Jesus found him the second time. Now, was he looking for Jesus? We don't know. But we could surmise that maybe he wasn't, given the detail that John was giving in the the context of the Scripture. How many people receive the blessings from the Lord and ignore the Lord? How many people left Jesus when he gave them a hard teaching? Most of them. A.B. Simpson, the founder of the movement of the Christian and Missionary Alliance that soon became a denomination, which I'm sure he would have opposed, wrote numerous songs. Here's one of the entry to one of his songs. Once it was the blessing, now it is the Lord. Once it was feeling, now it is His word. Once His gifts I wanted, now the giver own. Once I sought for healing, now Himself. Alone. Now, the second interaction is very important for us to understand. It appears as many believers that the situation the man had was due to a sin in a man's life. That's why Jesus said what he said in verse 14. Now, it's important not to generalize that all sin with a malady that we're born, that we are born into sin, and that just because you have a cold doesn't mean that you've sinned somewhere. And you have friends like Job come and tell you, well, you must have sinned somewhere. You got a cold. Don't give it to me. I don't want your sin. 
But there are times where our sin leads to a malady, an infirmity, an illness. And it seems like this is what's taking place here. Jesus knew that this man's malady was a result of a sin in his life. And he tells them, I see that you're well. Go and sin no more, lest something worse happen to you. Kind of lends to the fact that Jesus knew what it was. Remember in Matthew chapter 12, verse 45, the story of Jesus when he talks about how demons are removed from a person and they go and they roam around and they can't find any place. And what do they do? They come back to where they were and they find the house in order, neat and clean, but not filled. And they come back seven times worse. Brothers and sisters, people that are listening online, listen to this. When we have an encounter with Christ, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Don't walk away. Repent and believe. Don't miss them. Thinking about one of our friends who went to Heaven's Gate and Hell's Flame the same time Mike did. And after the presentation, he looked at me with tears in his eyes. He said, Tim, I don't know. Tim, I don't know. I said, he knows. Just trust in him. We lost our friend a few years ago. And I don't know. whether he missed him. Don't miss Jesus. Verse 17. But Jesus answered, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Very important scripture we need to understand. For the Jews believed Jesus was violating the law of the Sabbath. Because this man was carrying a bedroll. And they failed to see two things. First, the Father is always working. Although the Father rested on the seventh day from all of His creative works, He did not stop preserving and governing what He had created. I'm glad God the Father didn't stop doing anything on the seventh day because it would have all fallen apart. He's always preserving, always governing. And the Levitical laws of the Sabbath were for men to stop their toil and worship God and to enter His rest, not the other way around. And He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man, for the Sabbath. God does not have to honor the things of man. But we must honor the things of God. Additionally, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Right after that, in Mark, he says this, So the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. You imagine the reaction he got with that one. 
Now, when Jesus was said he was working with the Father, his working this statement caused the Jews to begin to plot against him because basically he was saying he was equal to God, which he is. This is the first time that Jesus proclaimed who he was to the ruling Jews in the Gospel of John. We read over it and we go, okay, yeah, yeah. No, they heard very clearly, you just said you're equal to God. Who are you to say that? They missed him. They missed him. They failed to see he, he was the Son of God. He was the Son of Man. That he is the Lord of the Sabbath because they were so focused on their man-made laws. For it, they missed him. For all they seen was a lawbreaker. That's it. They seen him as a sinner. That's it. They missed him. They missed who he was. Brothers and sisters, we can find ourselves in this exact same situation if we're not careful. We can be so focused on denominationalism, traditions, interpretations, liturgical application, how we go about doing church, that we miss what Jesus is doing. I talked about Heaven's Gate and Hell's Flames. There are some people that didn't support that ministry because they don't like the depiction of what happens after life in the play. I get it. I have reservations myself. But we supported it, and I was there Sunday and Tuesday. I wasn't able to be there Monday because I was putting the framework of my sermon together. Every night, 20 to 30 people came up for the first time and gave their life to Christ. Mike was saved at Heaven's Gate in Hell's Flame. We can discuss whether they're doing a proper depiction of what happens after life. I get it. But don't miss the fact that people came to Christ. And I seen their faces. It was a mixture of, oh my gosh, the, the years I've wasted mixed with this joy of knowing Christ. Don't miss Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the story of Jesus' interaction with the paralytic has an enormous amount of biblical lessons that we can learn and apply to our life. This morning, we've seen how the paralytic and the ruling Jews missed who Jesus really was because their focus was not on Jesus, but on what he did. Or the paralytic and having a misdirected faith on a pool and other people. Let us not be one of them. Let us not be blinded by the blessings that Jesus gives us to where we miss the blesser. Let us not be blinded by religion and the law and its rigid application and miss Jesus and miss what he's doing in other people's lives or what he's calling you to do in other people's lives. Let's be spiritually sensitive and attentive to where the Lord is leading us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this lesson that we receive. And Father, now as we come before your table, Lord, and celebrate your table and remember and invoke, Father, the importance of not only your sacrifice, but your coming again. Father, let us not miss you. 
And so, Father, as the communion stewards come forward, we ask your blessing to be upon this word. May it forever stir in our hearts. And as we celebrate your table, Lord, Father, let us come before your throne of grace in a time of need. Let us examine ourselves, Lord, to ensure there's nothing standing between you and us. And if there is, let us confess it in the name of Jesus. Amen.